This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Until recently, the mayor of Montclair, New Jersey, the head of the local teachers union, appointed the school board. In other words, the teachers union was virtually in charge of the schools. It was sitting at both sides of the table in any collective bargaining session. One result was that the uh, Montclair schools were among the very last to reopen to in-person learning as the COVID pandemic was winding down. So Montclair has since switched to an elected school board and it's now cutting costs and is finding itself in battles with the teachers union. But is Montclair just a weird case or are teachers and teacher organizations sitting on both sides of the bargaining table more generally? And what happens when, when teachers are represented on a school board? Do students learn more or less? You could make the argument that just like businesses have business leaders sitting on their boards to help the CEO and keep the CEO under check. So teachers should be on school boards to make sure that the work of the school board is focused on education. So do students benefit or do teachers just benefit? How does it all work out? So John Singleton has done some really new, uh, exciting uh, research on this because it's not an easy thing to tease apart here. So he's a professor at Rochester University in economics and he's co-author with Ying Shi of a forthcoming article in Education Next entitled, putting teachers on the ballot. So I'm very pleased to have uh, Professor Singleton with me here on the Education Exchange. I must say he's also made a presentation at the ongoing school board conference, and his presentation will be appearing, if you didn't have a chance to hear it, uh, when it was live uh, in, in the next few days. So, uh, John, you've been working very hard for us, uh, and so thank you for joining me again uh, on the Education Exchange. Yeah, I'm delighted to be here. Uh, looking forward to the conversation, Paul. So, John, you have done the first ever study that promised to show the causal effects of putting an educator on a school board. Um, that's really quite uh, an accomplishment. How, how did you do that without getting us too deep into the weeds? Can you tell uh, generally what was your strategy to our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, and you know, there's always a bit of serendipity and a bit of you know uh, of foresight, and these things kind of combine in interesting ways when you're involved in the research process. I think from kind of our, the background, you know, perspective or context of why we were approaching this question. Was I well, on the one hand, I had done some earlier work um, looking at school board elections in North Carolina, um, where we there what we were looking at was really kind of the partisan configuration of the school board, which was interesting because at the time, and and I think this is still largely true, the the, the members themselves and they don't show up on the ballot as having a partisan affiliation. What we were doing was we were finding those school board members and then we were looking up their partisan affiliation in the North Carolina voter registration. And um, my co-author at the time, uh, Hugh McCartney and I were looking at what was happening in terms of like how students were getting assigned to schools, was the school district becoming more segregated or less? And that had really been motivated by a lot of controversy around those kinds of questions in North Carolina. But we were excited about that project because we were, you know, and I think I'm still excited about it because 
we were showing that there's uh, causal effects of what happens on the school board in terms of some downstream things happening to students in, in schools. So that was one piece of background here. Um, so it was, it was natural for me and 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 for and for Yang and, and um, to start thinking about well, what you know what other kinds of things should we be thinking about in terms of school board's composition and in terms of downstream outcomes. Well, the, the key thing here in California, I think, is that in California they have this amazing way of putting people's names on the ballot. And I think yes. what you, you're you doing here is you're taking into account the fact that it's by accident or by a random draw that your name can be first on the ballot. I always want my name first on the ballot because <laughs> then I can be sure or at least have a better chance of winning the election. Of course, I probably couldn't win many elections no matter if I was, uh, you know, bold faced and and everything else on uh, on the ballot, but uh, but I, it is an advantage, isn't it, to be first place on the ballot? It is, it is. So there's a big literature now in political scientists, they, in science, they call this the ballot order effect, and it's especially pronounced in these kind of low information, nonpartisan contests like school boards elections. If you're drawn into that top ballot position. You, you get a much higher likelihood, you're going to get more votes, you're going to have a higher likelihood of, of winning the election. I think in our data set, we estimate about a 10 percentage point, a 10 percentage point bump. So the, end of the other thing about a California ballot that uh, yes. I pointed out to, on the conference uh, discussion was that actually it, it, they say the job that everybody has. So you so if you're a veterinarian, that gets put up on the ballot. If you're uh, the head of a nonprofit organization, that gets put on the. And if you're a teacher, it goes on the ballot. This person is a teacher. Yeah, yeah, and then that's really key because in general, we don't have a good info. We don't have good information or a good idea of who's on school boards. It's not the kind of data that gets collected in like state education data systems. You know, going back to like the No Child Left Behind era, where we've, we've got good information on teachers and schools and classrooms. School board members don't show up in that. So, you know, you sort of need these external data sources. And the California elections data was sort of the perfect solution there. Like you said, it's the, the, they're self-identifying their occupational background, which allows us to look at, the, uh, at you know, that, that composition on the board. So you're able to find out what happens if a teacher gets onto the school board as a result of being first on the ballot. So if you're first on the ballot and you get onto the school board, you figure that they got on pretty much by by a random accident out there and that wasn't uh so therefore you can find out what's the effect of a of a teacher lucking out exactly exactly so yeah the the, the the sort of the hypothetical experiment here is two school districts in california both have you know several educators running for office but in one of those school districts one of the educator gets that first ballot position in that district, a teacher is going to be much more likely to end up on the school board. And so then we can compare those two districts, you know, two, three, four, five years later in terms of what are they spending money on? How are students doing on standardized tests, et cetera? Well, so how many teachers actually get onto school boards in California? I think it's close to 19, 20 percent, I believe. So about one out of one out of five. One out of five. That's right. One out of five is, is on the ballot. And now, or is on the school board, and 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 what? How many people are there on the school board? In, uh, I think average is about five. They, they're usually an odd number, and I think it can range from three to nine. Um, so, so that means that it, getting a teacher onto a school board, on average, could have a big time effect because it could be the you know change the vote from two to two, 
to three to two. Absolutely, absolutely. And you can even imagine on like a big board, like a teacher being on the school board could change the, the entire you know tone of the conversation because they could be platforming different issues, right? They could be the one bringing you know, the issues of teacher salaries and teacher working conditions to the board. So um, yeah. I have the big advantage of knowing about schools and the way other people, like if I go onto the Coca-Cola school board I, I I don't even drink Coca-Cola, so <laughs> I, I I would not be an influential voice. But teachers, when they get on a board, they uh, they know what they're talking about, probably. Yeah, and so that was one of our hypotheses, right? I think I think you were talking about this earlier. There's there's definitely a literature and sort of focused on like corporate boards of governance, where it's showing that you know it's good to have people in those positions of of power and monitoring over a corporation who have expertise in what that firm does, right? This this makes complete sense. From an economics perspective of solving principal agent problems and so teachers could be doing that right um they, they've been in the classroom they've been in the school they know where the problems are they know where the red tape is maybe they get on the school board and they, and they start and they go to work fixing those things that that's absolutely what you know one of the one of the things we you know certainly i think we were hoping to see in the data well i guess my my first guess would be get a teacher on the school board and teacher salaries will go up and uh and and i think you actually find that don't you we do, we do, and and um, I think what's uh, what's nice here in particular is we, we show this in two ways. On the one hand, we show it in in what money what money is being spent on. So we can look at you know the share of money that is being spent on teacher salaries, and that's going up. But the other thing we're actually able to look at in California, because California has good reporting of this, is the salary schedule itself, which says things like a teacher with this amount of education, with this many years of experience should get paid this amount in this school district. And we also saw that we see that those salary schedule items or those cells, the salaries attached to each of those is also going up. So it's not just that the teachers the, you know, are getting paid more, but we also see the salary schedule itself, which is the thing that the, the district is collectively bargaining with the teachers union over, it, the, the salaries there are going up as well. Well, where's the money coming from? Because actually in California, the state aid formula is set by the state legislature and that's about 90 percent of the money and percent yeah. that comes from the locality is all determined by a formula that can't be changed easily so uh they've got to steal from peter to pay paul here don't they <laughs> where are they getting the money from absolutely absolutely so what it doesn't look like benefits are going down it doesn't look like um, um other salaries for like staff and administrators are going down it, what it looks like is decreasing as these salaries are increasing is capital spending, the capital outlay. So that could be for you know buying new computers. It could be for you know rehabilitating schools, and also services. And services is kind of you know a big category. It's kind of a catch-all. So it's a little bit hard to say exactly what's falling into there. Um, but if, those two things are the, are the spending categories that we see declining. Well, maybe that's a good thing. I mean, maybe we should be saying, "Hurrah! Let's put teachers <laughs> on the school board," because actually. You know, it's not it's not uh, difficult to make the argument that teachers should be paid more. Yes, uh, their, their salaries are not. Some places they're overwhelmingly big, but a lot of places they're not. So, uh, and and so there is a case to be putting more money into teacher salaries and and less money into some of the other stuff that school boards spend money on. So maybe this is all to the good. No, absolutely. I think I think I think you're exactly right. I think. I think what that raises, the question that raises then is what's happening to students? What's happening to student learning? Are student outcomes improving? Right. I think you in the back of your mind, you can sort of have two models, right? One is you know, teacher salaries go up and maybe that's leading to 
better teacher morale. Maybe that's leading better teachers to move to that school district, et cetera. And maybe we might expect student test scores to, to improve as a result of that. On the other hand, you know, there's a long line of research in political science and economics suggesting that what's really going on is rent seeking. And in a rent seeking kind of story, you know, these, these salaries are increasing for teachers, but those resources are really coming at the expense of students. In which case we would expect that that you know student learning student test scores go down. So really, you know, what we want to know at the end of the day is what's happening for students, right? Like, uh, you know, if, if what we saw in the data was the test scores were going up, I, you know, I think I think we'd feel very differently about that um, than if we saw that test scores were were, were essentially. Flat. Well, and I noticed that you actually showed that the reading scores looked to me, at least when I looked at your graph, they looked to me like they were they were going down. Now, I know you sort of say, well, it's not clear. Uh, <laughs> I, I thought it looked clear, but yeah. tell me why you think it's a little more gray than that. Yeah. They're a little bit less precise than we would like, right? Like we're thinking about kind of traditional, you know, thresholds for statistical significance. Um, yeah, I think I think if you look at the elementary level for reading scores, you know, I think we're in like that ninety percent kind of confidence interval. Um, and you know, one of the reasons I, you know, I, I sort of put an asterisk on that is. If you look at kind of how the student composition is changing in the school district, and it could be changing because people are changing districts because they're moving to charter schools or private schools, it also looks like that's kind of changing. And so part of what's happening with test scores could be just a function a little bit of the student composition. So it's a little, you know, ideally we would have like student level data where you could track the same student um, through time, but we don't have that. So, you know, this is just, you know, the, you know, you know being a little bit cautious with our results. You know, I agree with you. You know, you look at the picture and it, 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 you, you see a downward trend. Um, but, you know, you know, I want to uh, apply some caution there. Well, so you may not be totally confident that it's going downhill, but you certainly are confident it's, it's not going uphill, right? Putting a teacher on the board is not leading. It's not like they're bringing their expertise to bear on the problems at hand and they've helped the superintendent solve the problem by being by their presence on the board. That's right. That's right. So, you know, in, in, in education, we often you know, think about things in terms of like the student standard deviations. So the standard deviations of the student test score distribution, like getting a high quality teacher is like a point one, right? That, that's a big, that's a pretty big effect in, in our literature. We can rule out anything bigger than like a point zero five. So that, that's, a, you know, that would be a meaningful increase and we can rule out you know, anything bigger than that as uh, as um you know happening because of the election of the, of one of these educators. So yeah, you're right. We maybe we can't say that it's it's necessarily negative, but we can say it's not like a big positive thing. Well, the other big finding that you uh, have is that the charter schools uh, lose ground when a teacher comes on on board. So uh, how, how does that work? So I think you show that there's one less charter school in the district than there would be otherwise. But, you know, I didn't know that the school board had that much control over how much, how many charters there were. Uh, so could you lay how that? That's right. That's yeah. So th this differs a lot across states. So a lot of states now have like a state board that does charter school authorizations. But there are several states, California included, where um, at least some fraction of charters are authorized through the local school district, meaning that the local school board or a committee set up by the local school board is going to have, say, and final say over whether a new charter school gets to open. And so the result we're showing is that in that district where you've got that additional educator, if we look four years later compared to a district that didn't have that additional educator, they're going to have about one fewer charter school on average. And 
a lot of things could be happening that are driving that result. It could be like a deterrence effect where like this educators on the school board and people who want to start charter schools, that's kind of an organic process or, or, or a bottom up process might say, oh, what? you know, we don't want to open a charter school in the school district anymore. It could be that that district makes it very hard for those charters to get approved. There's a lot of paperwork involved in that process. You have to get your curriculum approved. You, you have to look. The other thing you have to do is secure like a location or or, or um, you know where you're going to teach. And the school district can make you could you know uh, work to your advantage or work against you through that process as well. So it's potentially the kind of thing where they're putting up extra red tape, um, or you know otherwise just uh, deterring deterring uh, new starts of charter schools. So you. Um... Uh, at the conference, a lot of people had questions, and yeah. and uh, I we weren't able to get to all of them. So I wanted to try out some of these questions. Right. On, uh, one was, well, have you looked at other candidates? I mean, how about veterinarians? Have they? <laughs> sure. No, this is a great question. Um, we we did a little bit of work, and I I'm getting into the territory of not exactly being able to remember our results. So I, I apologize for that. But we did a little bit of work looking at people who self-identify as like a business person. And our idea there was, you know, if I'm if I'm elected to the school board, maybe I'm going to bring like a, a corporate or business mentality. You know, I'm going to try to make things run better. There's also some evidence that like business-oriented folks may be more fa charter favorable. Um, so we did some little bit of work on that. We also looked at when like parents get elected. To be honest, I just don't recall the results. I think, you know, I, I actually got an email from one of the conference participants um, asking this very question about parents in particular. So maybe it's something we should revisit. Um, because yeah, you, you're absolutely right that our, our research design is amenable to this, you know, approaching the question uh, about these other kinds of uh, kinds of folks who get elected to school boards. Does, uh, do anybody who's on whose name on the ballot self-identify as a parent? Do they say? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They they absolutely do. Um, I, but that that's, that's sort of interesting because it doesn't prove that parents make a difference. But you could say if somebody calls themselves a parent, right, be what they're there for, right? We're we're going onto this board to represent parents, and you could see whether or not yes, do teacher salaries go up or down if a parent additional parent gets on the board. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I think one, you know, we just have to check in the data how many folks that is, but I think it is, a, you know, uh, it's probably, it may be only like a single digit percentage, but um, in principle, it's something we could do. Um, maybe something we should do. Yes. So what do you think of this idea of off-cycle elections and and elections held at the same time as presidential elections and gubernatorial elections? Somebody has, has asked that question here. Um, you should we should we go to that uh, holding elections at the same time? Exactly what does happen in California? Yeah, I I, th I think there's been a move recently, including in California, to have elections at sort of on cycle. I think is is the the term of the art, meaning um, you know around when a, a presidential election at the same time a presidential election or the same time of you know like the the Senate and, and congressional races. One way to look at it is, you know, there's, there's sort of a trade-off of these off-cycle elections. So maybe it's an election in like early Ju June or, or, or late May. Um, you're going to have very low voter turnout, but the average voter is going to be someone who's probably much more motivated and much, much more informed than the average voter in, say, say a presidential contest. And I think the way that that potentially rubs in, in terms of the, this unionization question is in some of these contests um, that are off-cycle, voter turnout is so low a large interest group, such as the local public school teachers, 
Um, if there's a high voter turnout among them, can can almost sway the election alone. So, you know, I think on 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 balance, th there are good arguments for thinking about putting these elections on cycle. You, know, you might worry about voter information, and I think that's a valid concern. But you know, I think the research that's going to come out in the next several years is going to potentially, uh, you know, uh, provide some answers to those questions, right? I think I think we're seeing more and more places move to to on cycle elections, and so it'll be interesting to see what some of the evidence says. Well, you focus a lot on California in part because that's where the information was. But are there other states that also use this uh, random assignment of, of of ballot position or have you looked at this issue in other contexts? Because uh, California, you might say, yeah, California yeah. is a strong union state. California yeah. has got lots of money. Um, you know, it's got a lot of peculiarities. You know, most of us who live in other parts of the country look at it in California is not. <laughs> so uh, why can we generalize from California? No, it's a, it's a it's a very good very good question. I know there are other states that randomize ballot order. Um, or that used to randomize ballot order and moved away from it, but I'm, I'm kind of blanking on on the specific states that they are. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think you're right to raise questions. I mean, California is also unusual in that it has lots of school districts, including like elementary school districts and high school districts as separate districts, even though they share kind of um, the geographic area, and that's unusual in the United States. So I think it's it's an important question. I think it would be it would be nice to to uh, to see further studies that look at this in, in other states. Um, maybe using ballot order or maybe using another strategy that uh, would try and get at the causal question. So some people here have who attended the conference have said we should find a way of bringing parents into the conversation to offset the power of teacher unions. So on the one hand, you've got this collective bargaining between the board and the union, but maybe you've got people who are on the board who are actually elected by union members. So maybe anything decided by the board should have to be ratified by the community or by parents or something. What, what do you think of that strategy? It's, a, it's an interesting proposal. It's not one I, I, I had heard prior to, to, to that suggestion, but you know, it, is kind of, it has this, this very California flavor of direct democracy, right? California is a place where you see these kinds of referendums a lot. Um, it's interesting. I, you know, I think it's, um, I think I think you'd again have to you you get return to this issue about voter information and how how informed voters are. Um, you know, is this going to if it if the referendums they sort of you know for instance there's referenda already on sort of uh, school bond elections right these these happen regularly in New York we had an election several days ago here in Monroe County in, in upstate New York um, but there there are there are often uh, school uh, elections related to capital financing and and bond and bond referenda. Um, and so, in a sense, right, voters already have a stake stake there. And I think, you know, I think the same kinds of issues you'd worry about when it comes to electing school board members would show up just as equally there, right? Are, are voters actually informed? How high is turnout, et cetera? So, you know, I, I think it's an interesting idea. I, I would worry again that you know, it could just be the kind of thing that's you know, the way that elections can be manipulated by interest groups. Um, we might have, be having the same conversation about the, that referenda process that we're having now about a, election of school board members. So how do we know that these teachers are friendly to the teacher union? I mean, a lot of the conversation at the conference was that, but Nick Melboyne was was president. He's a school board member in Los Angeles, and he was also a teacher, and he was not friendly to the teacher. Yeah. <laughs> anything unfriendly to them. So 
what uh, can you be? Maybe these teachers are on the board to keep the unions under control. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 this is a this is a great point. I think this is a you know this is one of the limitations of our research for sure. Um, I think on the one hand, I think Nick is atypical probably amongst California former teachers. Um, most teachers in California are part of the teachers union, at least while they're teachers. And so I think on average, it's it's you know right to suspect that they're um, union aligned. That's that's reflected in survey data. So there's there's been surveys of school board members in California where they report what's their occupational background. In other words, have I been an educator? And was I endorsed by the teachers union? And former educators are more likely to have been endorsed by the teachers union. The other piece that I think is, you know, and, and, and this is a little bit falls into the, you know, the category of like circumstantial evidence, I would say. But if you look at the pattern of what our effects are, right, we're seeing teaching salaries going up, we're seeing charter schools going, charter schooling going down. It's broadly consistent with the stated aims of teachers union. So, um, again, you know, that that is circumstantial at some level. Um, and we, we can't specifically we can't look at like an educator's union affiliated versus one that's not. Unfortunately, we'd love to be able to do that. Um, but I think you know the broad pattern of our, our effects are at least consistent with what's happening with educators is they're bringing uh, someone to the board who's more sympathetic to the teachers union on average than other kinds of school board members. So why didn't you see any effects on on benefits? Benefits for teachers have been running mm -hmm. rapidly over the last 10, 10 to 20 years. And uh, you would have thought you'd seen a lot more benefits piled on uh, if you got an extra teacher on the board. but but you don't see that. Is that all decided elsewhere, or what's the reason why? It's a good question. No, I we were we were you know at some level we were disappointed not to find that as well. I you know we we looked hard for for effects on benefits. Our, our we one of our main measures is sort of a, a, a quantitative measure of like the the generousness of health benefits. Um, we also looked at you know often um, you know, one thing you could look at is like the number of of service days required of teachers so like how many years how many sorry days in in do they have to be in service uh, during the school year we looked at both of those dimensions you know one thing that I, I you know one thing could just be statistical there's not much variation in those things across school districts so you might be getting very small movements that we just can't you know we just can't say are statistically significant one way or the other. Um, but no, I, I think it's a really good question, and I, do, I don't have a good answer without having better information on sort of how the, the collective bargaining process is happening. It may be that they're sort of bargaining over these, you know, very high level course things like this percent increase in teacher salaries, and they're not bargaining so much over, you know, um, you know, how much are, you know, the district contributions to teacher retirements. But I this, this is completely speculative. Um, you know, one way of viewing that is, I think you know, I you know, if it were teachers' unions, I would have expected uh, at least my prior expectation was that we were going to see something on benefits, and and we don't. So um, yeah, I, I this is I'm curious uh, what's going on there as well. Well, I heard some discussion at the conference uh, that sort of suggested that maybe this is not the major vehicle by which unions influence uh, school board operations. That the collective bargaining process is more important the fact that they bring so much resources to the table and and the administrative side has fewer resources and the and the board itself tends to be lay people who can get lost in the weeds so maybe this is not the key to union power in California but it's it's sort of an interesting part of it but it's not the central role would, would you agree with that 
Yeah, I, th yeah. That's, I mean, this is we're, we're really butting up against what I think is I at least I think of as a big data limitation, right? At, 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 a, at a quantitative kind of rigorous level, school boards are a black box to us, right? We 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 see a change in the school board and we see something happening in the school district, but what happened between those two things, you know, we, we can speculate. I think one thing that was brought up at the conference, which is absolutely true, is is the superintendent. Um, and and there's there's two ways to kind of look at that. I think there's one way to look at it. Well, it's probably the superintendent who's most directly involved in, in these bargaining. They're also going to be most directly involved in the day-to-day -day running of the school system, in hiring teachers and hiring principals, et cetera. The other way of looking at it is, well, who who hires the superintendent in the first place? Well, that's the school board, right? The buck sort of stops with the school board. So, um, you know, I think this is, like I said, this is kind of, you know, where the frontier is at is, can we can we learn more about what's happening on the school board, um, what what decisions they're making, what decisions they're outsourcing to managers such as a superintendent? If it is the superintendent, can we learn more about superintendents, um, you know, their background or their education or their experience, the decisions that they're making? Um, yeah, I, I I'm you know I'm trying I, I have several projects planned where I you know I'm, I'm hoping to investigate some of these issues, but I I, I think they're they're very much open questions in the literature at the moment. Well, John, thank you very much for your excellent study of the impact that uh, changing the ordering on the ballot can have <laughs> the actual functioning of a school system. Uh, quite an amazing uh, innovation that you've undertaken here with all kinds of pregnant ideas uh, developing out of it. So thank you very much for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Paul. No, it was a delight. I'm always, uh, eager to uh, uh, you know, continue the conversation offline, um, and uh, but I, I enjoyed this very much. Thank you. Thank you. I've been speaking with John Singleton, a professor of economics at Rochester University. He's the co-author of a study, Putting Teachers on the Ballot. It'll soon be released on the Education Next website. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.